What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2020, and it's another episode of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Happy to have you with us for the first official show of 2020. I am Anthony Cazenza. I hope that you had a great holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Festivus, I guess, uh, all of the holidays around this time of year, and is also a, a Happy New Year. Hopefully you all had a safe and fun New Year, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, John Sheeran. John, Happy New Year, buddy. New Year, new uh, new team, maybe, I guess, in a way. It's it's rare when I understand a reference that you said it had a merry festivus to you too, or happy festivus or whatever, <laughs> whatever right. Mister Costanza calls it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, have, did you have a good New Year's? I did, I did. We we went out in the town and um, didn't didn't remember much, so mission accomplished. Yeah, you know that's usually uh, in the mornings when you hurt. That's usually a sign of a previous good night. So uh, I invested in some Pedialytes to uh. For, I was well prepared. So that stuff, that stuff really works, good. man. That's I mean, it takes a little bit, like, but it helps. I, I, I get clowned for being a child, but like I'm, I'm, I'm fine afterwards, and they're not. So yeah, it helps. helps. It helps, and it just, it's not like it tastes terrible or anything. Um, anyway, yeah, this, one, this one didn't taste that good, but whatever. We'll, we'll get another flavor next time. Yeah, I mean, that's not what uh, we shouldn't be promoting hangover cures on uh, the, this podcast. But hey, if, if P if PLA like, comes calling, I'll, I'm glad to take their money. Yeah, there you go. We can uh, we can maybe hit them up for a sponsorship or something. Uh, you know, we we we've got a lot to get to in this first episode of the year. We were feeling pretty good about. I mean, I guess as good as you could about a team that was two and fourteen. Um, feeling good about some news that that came out about the team. You know, the win and all of that, and we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But unfortunately, we receive news that former Cincinnati Bengals head coach Sam Weish, big figure within the organization, on Thursday, January 2nd, uh, passed away at the age of 74 years old. Very sad news. A bit unexpected, I think, to, to many. Uh, you know, he had had some major health issues, had a heart transplant a couple of years ago, but really sad news. And, uh, you know, not one... <laughs> you start the new year off and it's like, wow, okay, David Stern passes away and then Sam Weish passes away. It's like, wow, this is just kind of some some big names here two days into the new year. John, I know you weren't uh, – you were a, a twinkle in your father's eye, I guess, uh, when when Sam Weish patrolled the sidelines for the Bengals. Your, your thoughts when the news hit and, uh, you know, I know you've seen videos and pictures and all kinds of stuff about – about Sam, but uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't start off the show, you know, kind of sharing some memories and thoughts about him on, on the day that he passed away. 
Yeah, I remember hearing about his heart transplant and just his general health struggles of, of recent. And I wasn't 100% positive if he had dealt with cancer before, but just goes to show you that it's a it's a cruel disease that can take literally any one of us. And unfortunately for like, I, I remember looking up like his record overall with the Bengals and I was shocked to learn that he was actually under 500 for his career. And I was equally shocked that it just really didn't matter, I think, in terms of his legacy here because he was like the one coach that actually like did something with this franchise, you know, even in the later years of, of the Paul Brown era where he was still running the show, he was a, a meaningful presence to this organization. And I don't think there's really a bad memory. Any Bengals fan of the eighties really has been because in large part, when he left, it's when everything started going downhill, obviously Paul Brown passed away. And then, you know, Mike Brown, I guess, let, um, Weiss go. He went on to be the coach of the Buccaneers, and you know the '90s happened, whatever. But you know, even in the, even in his eight years here, where he was, I think you know only had like 64 total wins in 130 games. He still had three playoff wins. He still obviously led the best franchise record at the time in 1988 to, to that Super Bowl, a, a game that by and large they should have won. And not only that, but just like Paul Brown, such a tremendous innovator of the game, such a great building block of the NFL that we know today. You know, people think the West Coast offense originated in San Francisco. It originated, it originated on the Ohio River. And that, that's how that, you know, Boomer Sison's career really took off. And that's the, the development of Joe Montana. His legacy and his impact in the NFL is so vast. And even though he didn't have, you know, tremendous success as a head coach, just his overall impact on everyone, especially in the best times of Bengals football back in, in the 20th century, it's immeasurable. And it goes beyond just whatever whatever record would say. And by and large, by all accounts, you know, every interview that I've ever seen, he was just a very personable, very welcoming, hilarious man. That was just a, a, a blast to be around. So um, definitely rest in peace to him. Yeah, we've got uh, – and, and for those of you joining us live and for those who uh, watch the video after the fact, whether it's on CincyJungle.com, YouTube, uh, or even maybe the Facebook uh, Facebook Live video after the fact. But for those of you joining us live, they can see this as well. We've got a statement from Bengals President Mike Brown on the passing of Sam Weish. Uh, Sam was a wonderful guy. We got to know – uh, we got to know him as both a player and a coach. As a coach, he had great success um, and took us to the Super Bowl. He was friends with everyone here, both during his tenure as head coach and afterwards. We not only liked him, we admired him as a man. He had great generosity of spirit and lived his life trying to help others. We express our condolences to Jane and his children, Zach and Carrie. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to be the guy that's, you know, a little cynical, but I mean, the, the Weish Mike Brown relationship actually ended with a little bit of acrimony towards the end there. You know, I think um, Sam Weish years ago was kind of asked, you know, why did you leave the Bengals or how did that play out? He kind of said a little tongue in cheek. Well, I found I was on my way to the office and I found out I was fired or, you know, and then Mike Brown kind of disputed that a little bit, but regardless bygones be bygones. That was, you know, a long time ago. And, uh, Mike Brown and the Bengals organization, obviously missing Sam Weish. You know, it's interesting. You, you talk about Sam Weish's, uh, you know, his, his success or, you know, lack thereof in terms of overall, overall records and all that kind of stuff. You know, one thing that stood out to me is as the Bengals head coach, I mean, that was one of the, the feathers in Marvin Lewis's cap, right? Is that he was the all-time winningest head coach. He had the most wins. He had the highest winning percentage. But he didn't have what Weish had, which was a Super Bowl appearance, much less playoff wins. Um, and oddly enough, 
when Sam Weish was kind of had his back against the wall, so to speak, with the Cincinnati Bengals, that's when his teams ended ended up playing the best. In 1987, Cincinnati went four and eleven, and there was talk of he's not making it through. He's not making it past that season, much less into into 1988. Lo and behold, the Bengals go 12 and four and make it to the Super Bowl, nearly win that Super Bowl. Next year, following that, they go eight and eight. I, I believe at the end of that season was the infamous "You don't live in Cleveland" game. Uh, and they finish eight and eight. They miss the playoffs. Well, 1990, of course, they under him, they go nine and seven, make the playoffs, get it, get another win there. And, uh, you know, that then the, the infamous Bo Jackson game occurred there. So my, I guess my, my thoughts about him were, were this, you know, back against the wall. And when he needed his team to perform, he got him to perform. He had the, he won quite a few big games he was a personality that was really unmatched, and uh, especially in in Bengals. I mean, when you look at the the coaches after him, there was not one that really, you know, wore his heart on the sleeve like that. And really, I mean, Marvin Lewis was a was a good man and a good football coach. Sometimes he got a little terse with the media and fans and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you look at Zach Taylor, he seems to kind of be the aw shucks, you know, young go-getter type of guy. The guys before them, a lot of blah uh, personalities, but Sam Weish really brought the personality to, to the team. And like you said, he was very innovative, John, um, very innovative in terms of the offense they ran. That offense that they ran in 1988 um, – was just, you know, the play action, the West Coast offense, the, you know, just doing all kinds, flea flickers and all kinds of stuff that was not part and parcel of the NFL really so much at the time because it was kind of a running back heavy league, a running back centric league at the time. Um, Yeah, you had your Marinos and Jim Kellys and whatnot, but, um, you know, he kind of helped Boomer get to that echelon of, of quarterbacks in the league at the time. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but I just kind of want uh, and I want some type of answer to this question. Like since since Weish had that personality and he had, you know, relative success to the Bengals standards, and then he was fired by Mike Brown. Do you think that at the time it could be classified as a similar situation to when Jimmy Johnson was fired by Jerry Jones, and, and where like Mike's, you know, fresh ego as the new owner of the team got the better of him and ended up making a, a wrong decision? Because obviously. Johnson won Super Bowls with, with Dallas, and then Jerry, you know, thought he could do it on his own. And then Weiss never won a Super Bowl there. But do you think those situations were kind of similar? Or they could be classified in a similar category? Yeah, I, I, I mean, similar. Obviously, Jimmy Johnson had the two the two Super Bowl victories, which was, uh, you know, obviously making it a bit different. But um, I think I think there are a lot of similarities there, and it's odd, odd you know, it's it's pretty apropos that you bring that up because I was thinking about this today upon the news of his passing. And, and, you know, I, I thought about, you know, Mike Brown probably at the time when he took over, he probably got along with Weish okay. But at the time it was kind of like, look, we're not getting to where we want to go. I've got a vision. I've got a plan. I want to do things my way, much like Jerry Jones. I want a new coach and I want a new quarterback. What he probably tried to do is sell the idea of a David Klingler or someone like that in the draft to Sam Weish 
Sam Weish wasn't on board with that. He was comfortable with Boomer, even though Boomer showed a couple of signs of regression, you know, in the, in the 91 season, but, um, you know, played well in 90 to take him to the, to the playoffs. And I think there was probably just a disagreement there. That's my take on it. Um, that of the vision and where the team was going to be headed in terms of, of Sam Weish and Boomer Esiason kind of being cycled out much like Mike Brown saw towards the early eighties when Forrest Gregg and Ken Anderson were cycled out of the team and they moved on to Weish and Boomer. And that, you know, at the time moving on from Ken Anderson to Boomer, while Anderson had a lot of years of experience, um, you know, that, that wasn't, that didn't sit too great with a lot of fans because of what Ken, Ken Anderson meant to the team. So, um, you know, I, I think that was just kind of, like you said, maybe the owner trying to put the stamp on, on his, his stamp on things, getting out of his father's immense shadow and it didn't work and it hasn't worked since. So that's my two cents on it. Uh, I, I don't know if you have a take on that. I'd love to hear it. I, I, I just, I never really realized that until we were just like talking about it. But it, it, I always just hear like the, the two main decisions that were made or weren't made, I guess, towards the, 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 Casting off Bill Walsh to the West Coast, where he went on to create a dynasty in the, in the 80s, and then the firing of Sam Walsh, Sam White, excuse me, that kicked off the 90s. So it, it just, uh, and, and those two, I guess, like, were, were, were had an influence and worked together in San Francisco. So it's just, it's always been interesting to me to see, you know, the decisions or the indecisions that stunted what could have been Cincinnati and what and ended up kickstarting in San Francisco and, and how. You know, some things in the NFL are, are more similar than you might think. Yeah, and I think I think Weish unfortunately lives a little bit in the shadow. You you kind of Freudian slip, Bill like a Walsh name, yeah. there, Bill Walsh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, those two worked as assistants with the Bengals, uh, and right. and Walsh was kind of the next guy in line, as as many hardcore Bengals infamously know. Walsh was the next guy in line. He didn't get the job. He moved on to San Francisco, and you know, oddly enough, he and Sam Weish end up meeting in the in the Super Bowl in the late '80s. But Weish doesn't get the credit that Walsh does for creating the type of offense that that were so innovative in the '80s and have evolved into what you know many incarnations of what we're seeing today: um, play action based and and no huddle and all that kind of stuff. That's the, the, those are the things that Montana and Asaisen, Walsh and Weish ran a lot. And uh, Weish doesn't get the credit because he doesn't have the Super Bowl wins that, that Walsh did. But those are the kind of things those two were working on while they were with the Bengals. Um, so the, Bengal, the, the, the NFL lost an innovative mind, a great personality. I'll leave it with this. If you want to, I, I don't know where you can find it, maybe on YouTube. It used to be on the NFL Network's top 10 countdown. Um, so maybe it's somewhere in their archives or something. But if you go back, there's, <laughs> there is uh, a, a top 10 count. I think it was top 10 rivalries or something. Uh, and it was one of them that was the old AFC Central and the coaches within it. It was Chuck Knowles, Sam Weiss, Jerry Glanville, and uh, who am I forgetting? Um uh, I think it was Marty Schottenheimer at the time and, and, and uh, maybe Bud Carson as well. But anyway, in the eighties, these guys, it was four coaches, huge personalities, real old school approach guys. And Jerry Glanville was just a wacky, wacky dude. And um, he and Sam Weish would run scores up on each other, would do things that are just, you would not do today. Maybe, maybe if you're Bill Belichick, but that's about it. Uh, you would just, 
not do these things today. And in press press post game press press conferences, they would like talk noise about each other openly. I mean, it was it was hysterical. So if you can find some of that stuff, uh, I, if I find it too, I'll, I'll send a link out. But um, it was it was hysterical to to watch. And I remember there was a, a game against the Houston Oilers. Um, I think it was 1990 uh, or maybe it's 1989 when the Bengals missed the playoffs. Um, t- uh, you know, 10 seconds left. The Bengals are up 60 to 60 to seven on the Oilers and Sam Weish opts to go for a field goal with 10 seconds left and, and makes it 63 to seven. Um, and that's just the kind of guy he was on the football field. You know, that's just the kind of guy he was on the football field. And I, you know, I remember a bit of him. I was pretty young, but I remember a bit of him. I remember the Cleveland, you don't live in Cleveland, uh, game, um, you know, so for a guy like me that didn't grow up in Cincinnati, um, he was a guy that really resonated with me and it's, it was, uh, a little shocking to hear him pass. I know he had some health problems, but, uh, a little shocking to hear him pass. And we didn't want to start off the show on a sad note, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention Sam Weish talk about his tenure with the Bengals because he meant so much to this team. And, uh, you know, he he was he was a guy, John. I thought that did a great job of wrangling in huge personalities and harnessing that to get to some success. And uh, you know, Marvin Lewis did it a little bit on some levels at times, but not to the same level that Sam Weish did. So that's those are kind of some of the things I think about when I think about Sam Weish. Um, we're seeing a lot of I, I've, I see see a lot of comments here about Weish and the old AFC central and all of that. So um, yeah. RIP Sam. Uh, but we uh, will remember you fondly for sure. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent... You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. We're talking some Bengals news and notes. We're talk- We're going to talk about the Bengals' end of the season and what's ahead for them as the 2020 offseason is basically upon them, technically. 
And we'll talk about some season awards, some current coaching situations, uh, strategies, you know, some things they may look at going forward in this offseason. If you're new to this show, join us live every episode on CincyJungle.com where we have the live YouTube stream as well as the Facebook stream on the Cincy Jungle Facebook page. And we welcome you to the live stream if that's how you're joining us. If you want to catch the show after the fact or you're not able to catch the show live, get it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio. As I mentioned, it's on YouTube as well. So get the show how you can. So, yeah, I, 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 uh, so yeah just like right as the Bengals announced Sam Weish was, had passed away, uh, the NFL announced that the Bengals coaching staff would be going down the mobile to coach one of the senior bowl rosters. It would be them and the Detroit Lions, who are picking third overall in the draft, that are going to take the two rosters. It's typically, two of the worst teams that end up going down the mobile. I've been to the senior bowl for the past two years. Um, Last year, they had uh, John Gruden's Raiders down there leading the team. I think the year before that, or I think actually last year also, there was um, Kyle Shanahan's 49ers. Uh, Vance Joseph's Broncos were down there a couple years before. So uh, when you're when you're down there, you learn a lot about what the coaching staff is looking for, how they really structure their practice. And also, typically, more times than not, you'll see teams who coach the Senior Bowl invest a lot of the draft picks in Senior Bowl players. And it was interesting last year, when the Bengals didn't really have a coaching staff at the time that the senior bowl was happening, they didn't really have really any coaching coaches there at all. They, I think they had their handful of scouts and maybe a couple of assistants who were on the way out of this, the, the coaching turnover in general. So it was really hard to gauge what the Bengals were planning to do at the time that the senior bowl was happening. It was also when Brian Callahan was announced by John Gruden of all people that he would be the offensive coordinator. So it's kind of interesting how last year, the Bengals had like three coaches under contract in late January. And this year they have a full coaching staff, a full off season to work with. And then they're coaching the senior bowl. And I guess the, the one big storyline right now, or like the kind of storyline that could be something is revolves around Bill Callahan because the Redskins hired Ron Rivera as their head coach to a, like a five-year deal. He hired Jack Del Rio as the defensive coordinator, the guy that the Bengals were looking at hiring last year for the same position. But Bill Callahan was the interim head coach that Rivera's replacing, and he's now on the open market. And there were rumors last year that Zach Taylor, who was the unofficial announced head coach, that he wanted to hire Callahan as his offensive line coach. Callahan couldn't be bought out of Washington's contract, ends up hiring Jim Turner. So we're now a year into the, the Taylor-Turner relationship, head coach, offensive line coach. And it seems like, for the most part, this coaching staff is going to remain the same. But if there could be a couple of guys on the hot seat that could get replaced, Turner might be a guy. And if Callahan's available, he could be replacing him. So, Anthony, in terms of replacing Callahan for Turner, I think we would all agree upon that unanimously. But would you be interested, say that Callahan doesn't get a lot of interest from other teams, and bringing him on as a consultant, even though it would still be Turner with, you know, has the mainstay of, you know, what goes on in the offensive line room? The latter is actually, you know, I didn't know if you were going to present the the latter option as a possibility and I didn't really think about it as a possibility kind of the consultant with Jim Turner still being the offensive line coach I'd actually I'd be on board with that more so than the former um I I think the Bengals notoriously have and Zach Taylor to his credit brought in more assistance and stuff like that 
this year. I think he beefed up the coaching staff more so than it had been in previous years. I, I think maybe by a couple of coaches, but still, I mean, it, they more eyes, more more hands in the pot oftentimes helps, uh, especially a team in transition. I, I, you know, I, you and I both have been pretty critical of Jim Turner, especially in the in the off season when they hired him, when in the you know, in the first part of the year when the Bengals offensive line was really struggling. But the second half of this year, really after the bye, when the Bengals altered their scheme, when they did some different things up front with blocking, they rotated guys to to find the best players possible. The offensive line played a lot better the, the second half of the season. Bobby Hart played a lot better the second half of the season. Now, is it... it it's still maybe at an average-ish level, if not below average, but it's a lot better than what he was. Uh, you know, he played better. You saw some things from Fred Johnson in the final final game. He actually looks like he can he can play a little bit. Michael Jordan flashed towards the as he got more snaps. And I love what what Matt Minnick says on Twitter. You know, these guys that are getting higher PFF grades, these rookies or guys that are, you know. So so many people are quick to lambaste those guys saying, you know, they have low PFF scores, they're terrible players. Well, when they have limited amount of snaps and they don't get more snaps to not only get better, but make more positive plays. I mean, it, you understand what the concept there. So, uh, you know, I, I like what I've seen from the offensive line in terms of growth. I would like to see Jonah Williams out there under Jim Turner and and get a chance for him to coach that first round pick. I would like to maybe see Jim Turner, Brian Callahan, put the the actual five guys that they definitely want, hopefully have them healthy out there. And then you've got that valued veteran coach voice in Callahan, guy who has been a head coach in the league, a guy who is uh, coached at the college level as a head coach, uh, you know, a guy who is known for his offensive prowess. Um, that's kind of what Zach Taylor, I think, wanted in some form last year, be it as a defensive coordinator or what have you. He wanted that guy to lean on. He's got his son on the staff. He's tight with – I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. Um, I see the value in getting rid of Turner and just replacing him with Callahan. I, I do see the value in doing that, but, you know, I think – you saw a unit take some strides towards the end of the year. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little more hesitant now to say, you know, kick, you know, show them the door. And especially with the option you talked about with, you have Callahan in as a consultant. Uh, yeah. I think you do have to give credit where credit is due. And it's, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's not, it's not irresponsible, but I think it's more accurate to, to put that, revival of the offensive line or not a revival but just the better utilization of their talents with with what personnel they have to what scheme that they needed to run with joe mixon in the running game i think that was also a collective unit with with callahan and also taylor recognizing you know what strengths that they had and realizing that what they were doing was just not working at all it was the worst run running game in the league and just the adaptation adaptation of more more of a power and a man scheme to whatever you know talent they had on the offensive line and the the not the no hesitation moves to bench Billy Price, you know, when he was doing bad, and to give Fred Johnson some some tries out there, and to to stick with Trey Hopkins at center, and to bring back John Miller at, at right guard, even you know when when he wasn't fully healthy. So the the personnel moves, I think, off on the offense line give Turner the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if I continue to trust him going forward, but but this year has alleviated my concerns about his ability to develop talent. And yes, I do think that. You know, he shouldn't be outright fired, despite 
what our preconceived notions were about him. I still think that there are some questions about his character, but again, I don't know the man. I just go off of what I've read and what, what was previously reported over the past years or so. So yes, the benefit of the doubt can be slightly more given to. We can't forget about the whole Cordy Glenn situation. I still think that that's definitely a blemish that if not anything else is still cloudy over his overall character and whatnot. But also with Callahan, I think last year there was a lot of like rumors or talk about how, you know, one of uh, Taylor's first hires would be Mike Sherman, you know, his father-in-law, who was a former head coach with the Packers. He worked under him in Texas A&M and, and then with the Miami Dolphins, hiring him as like an offensive consultant or just like an offensive assistant. So whatever Marvin Lewis is doing for Herm Edwards in Arizona State would be a, a, a very good apt, apt comparison. A guy who doesn't have direct responsibility with every any one unit, but a guy who understands whatever scheme and type of offense that they're trying to run and to bounce off his veteran leadership. I think those, that's just a role that – you know, people pigeonholed Sherman for last year, but now I think Callahan would, would greatly fit that. But the problem is, like you said, this is like the most deep, packed, filled, full Bengals coaching staff that we've seen in recent memory. I think like it's the largest Bengals coaching staff ever. He, he like literally Zach Taylor had new offices built for his new coaches this office. When I toured the when I toured the facility in August, like I saw like new office spaces like next to the indoor facility, next to the locker room, like and I was told that they, they were freshly built for this new coaching staff. So it, it would have to take some type of, I think, some type of turnover there in, in terms of, you know, coaches leaving for other jobs and opportunities, and we can get that in, in a minute. But it's also the fact that not only do you have Turner here who has made a case to be brought back, but you also have an assistant offensive line coach as well, Ben Martin, I believe is his name, who's also deserves some credit for developing these young guys. So it would be a lot of voices in the room, mainly surrounding about one topic, but I, I, I do think that you have to value whatever veteran leadership and also familiar – or. Also, the fact that you know Callahan was Taylor's college coach in Nebraska—that just a general experience with, with him, and then bringing him with his son—it just makes a lot of sense. But but you're right; we can't just completely oust Turner because we do have to give him credit for whatever developments that he's made with with these young guys and turning slightly turn around this offense line to somewhat of a respectable unit. Uh, yeah, and I there's a lot of people that that say they like what they saw um I, you know they talked about joe mixon getting another 1100 yard season after a terrible start to the season um now a lot of a lot of those yards guys a lot of those yards were on joe mixon i mean he he was <laughs> he was really uh making some things happen but uh towards the end the scheme really opened up some things for for the for the team but um you know the the other side of this john um and we'll get to the senior bowl aspect in a second i think but the back-to-back uh, -back comments one both in the youtube chat and one in the live facebook austin trans says do you think the coaching staff is changing or uh it's the same going forward in 2020 uh and then you've got joseph stop in facebook saying bring joe brady with burrow uh joe brady is the passing game coordinator for lsu um and is kind of the hot name now and it's kind of in vogue over the past couple of seasons for teams to go after these young guys in college to come up and just randomly you know cliff kingsbury is one of them so um you know i i'm not saying brady's gonna come in and be a, a head coach but uh you know he could be looked at in some capacity maybe a similar role with an nfl team and, uh, you know, get a pay raise or what have you. But, I mean, all in all, do you see – part of me says you're a 2-14 team. There is absolutely no way you shouldn't talk about potential changes. But part of me says this this unit really never got a fair shake from the get-go. 
they got a late start. They had the injuries. They had, I mean, so I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't know. Right. And you, you, even with the late start, which I do give them some type of benefit of the doubt with that and some type of leeway in terms of, you know, their overall offseason plan last year and how rushed it was. But even still, like, it, it still took them a long time to hire a defensive coordinator. They went through a lot of names, a lot of guys who interviewed that eventually just never stuck. And they had to, I don't know if you want to call it settle on Lou Anaruma, but they did technically settle on a guy after, you know, however many interviews. So it, it, it's a matter of trust and, and them finding the right guy again but also recognizing just like Turner that Anna Rumo did turn around his unit in certain respects and got the most out of some of those, some of those young guys too. It's just a matter of, I think if there's going to be guys that are leaving, it's going to be guys that weren't hired last year. So you, you had, I think 24 coaches were hired and I think 17 or 24 coaches were on staff last year. 17 of them were hired in 2019. So you had seven leftovers from the Marvin Lewis era and the most notable ones were the special teams guys, Darren Simmons, the special teams coordinator, Braden Combs, his assistant special teams. I think Tom Pelissero, I, I believe it was, who's really got the insight on anything Bengals um, information in terms of reports. He was talking about he, they're, they're getting interest in other jobs as well. If anyone on the Bengals um, staff is going to get some type of promotion, it's probably going to be Simmons because, believe it or not, the Bengals did lead the league in something, and it was way to DVOA for special teams, according to Pro Football Outsiders. They were the best special teams unit in the NFL by far. And they did it without really like blocking a punt or a field goal or anything. It was just consistency on punt returns, kicks, kick returns, solid, punt coverage, solid, solid, kick coverage. Yeah. 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 Like to, to have career seasons from Brandon Wilson as a kick returner, to have Stanley Morgan as your best special teamer as a rookie, like phenomenal performances week in and week out, and why they remain, remain competitive in most of these games. So I do like Simmons was, I think he was probably the most serious candidate to be the in house replacement for Marvin Lewis last year, head coach. But Unfortunately for him, there's just not a lot of head coaching openings this year for him to get that opportunity somewhere else. But for uh, you know, freshly hired head coach somewhere, or maybe, maybe, maybe you know, uh, for like Dallas, for example, who is maybe firing Jason Garrett, they had the worst coach teams coach. He can get an opportunity there for a, a bigger organization. So I, I think those are the guys that were the notable guys that we could be looking at getting opportunities somewhere else. There's also uh, Durante Jones and Robert Livingston, the cornerbacks and stages coach respectively that were here during the later portions of the Marvin Lewis era that could also get opportunities elsewhere. Those contracts are expiring. So I think for the vast majority, if not all the coaches that were hired last year are coming back for 2020, but there's always surprises if there's, you know, some type of promotions to a big organization. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I see a couple of people saying, you know, fire Jim Turner, got to, got to get rid of him. I see others kind of saying, you know, Anna Rumo kind of in the a similar boat. I mean, I think those two are the most at risk, in terms of potential changes, but uh, uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people want to see what this team does with a a full off season, with a with some new high picks, with a hopefully healthier roster, um, and just kind of getting all the bad luck out last from you know last season and starting over fresh and really. Now this coaching staff can hit the ground running from day one of the offseason instead of week three or four of the offseason as, as it was, and even longer because the staff wasn't even fully assembled um, until I think in, well into February. So, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people want to see that and get have these guys get a fair shake now, especially since you saw marked improvement 
from most areas of the team. And, and John, you hinted at it. The part of the full offseason slate for the team and what's going to really be a major part of their offseason plan is now they've been designated to coach the Senior Bowl. The last, or at least one of the last times, I think there was one more. I think there was another time in 2009 when the Bengals did it. And then they did it. Uh, in, yeah, 2011 as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's 2009, 2011, and then they did it in 2003 and uh, when Lewis's first year. And obviously we know what Lewis was able to do with that first draft class. I, I personally, John, I think this is huge. I, you know, someone, someone, and kind of rightfully so in the comments said, oh, that's where they fell in love with Drew Sample last year and blah, blah, blah. Maybe, but limited scouting department. They rely on the coaches to do extensive scouting because of that. The last handful of times they have gone to the senior bowl, we mentioned the years. Look at the years. Those are three of their better years in recent memory. <laughs> Uh, and, and or led to multiple great years beyond that. So to me, this is a big, big plus. Well, talking about great years, like 2003, 2011, they both took quarterbacks high. Right. And they, they, and I, I don't think Palmer was at the Senior Bowl, even though he was the Senior Bowl. Dalton was at the Senior Bowl. And I think, he, I don't know if he was Senior Bowl MVP, but he played pretty damn well in the, in the game. The thing about what I don't think a lot of people realize, like you said, only two actual scouts in the scouting department, not, not a lot of assistants. The, the whole department is based around the coaches doing a lot of the work. And when asked about Joe Burrow in a tongue-in-cheek question at his like, end-of-the-season press conference, he told them the truth. He hasn't seen Joe Burrow play at all because they have no time to watch college players during the season when they're game-playing for the actual NFL. So when if Joe Burrow, for example, uh, gets invited to the Senior Bowl and then accepts the invite, that's going to be right after they watch the initial film. Like A lot of their initial impressions on Burrow or Herbert or Jordan Love or any of these other quarterbacks that they can consider in this game or in the Senior Bowl, it's going to be right after they've initially watched the, the first film on it. And obviously, they have area scouts that have, have obviously got some opinions on, on Burrow, and they sent Duke Tobin to watch Burrow and Justin Herbert uh, during the season. So there's going to be some type of initial opinions on there. But like you said, for the coaching staff, the guys who are going to be down there, the guys that have such influence on drafting uh, this draft class, a lot of their first impressions are going to be down there in the senior bowl. And, and like you said, Drew, Drew Sample is a senior bowl player. Jermaine Proud is a senior bowl player. Rennell Wren, and I believe there's one more from, from this past draft class. But like they, they had virtually zero presence at the senior bowl, but they still drafted a lot of those guys and still value the work and you know the, the, the performance that they put on down there. So to have them down there to evaluate what looks to be very promising senior bowl rosters, I, I, I would agree. It's definitely huge and it's definitely going to be important in their process because with how they structure their overall war room and, and their whole drafting committee, it's going to be fresh opinions based off of the initial film that they watched. Yeah. And I think a lot of, because of the, the smaller scouting department and the coaches being so heavily involved in the scouting process, I think the, the hands-on, you know, the, the pre-draft interviews are, are huge for the Bengals. That's why they liked Ryan Finley because that was really the only guy that they really liked and wanted to meet with in last year's draft. They, they, they like the pre-draft interviews to get to know these kids, and that's why coaching in the Senior Bowl for them is so huge, even though it's only a handful of days where they're, they're coaching them up and all that. They get 
a vibe from certain players as to how they respond to their coaching, how they respond in terms of learning what they're teaching them, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, and it's not like kind of the formal interview type of process that happens at the combine or the pre-draft interviews, but it's on the field. It's for a handful of days. And I, I think that means a lot to the Cincinnati Bengals and their staff in terms of who they're going to select. I, I don't, I, I would be very surprised if Joe Burrow plays in that game. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think as we sit here today, I think it's, it's him it's got to be him is the pick, um, uh, especially after, God, eight touchdowns. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think I, I just I think this this nomination, it really helps a team that has the smaller front office system. It really helps them and what they're trying to do, how they're trying to build their team. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of times they'll find a diamond in the rough. So I think it's a, I think it's a pretty big deal. Absolutely. And I just, I just remember like you, you, you could, like you said, you could definitely tell that some players just resonate with the coaching staffs more. And I, and I think it was, it was last year with the Raiders that John Gruden fell in love with, I think the, the, the safety that they drafted in the first round uh, out of Mississippi state. And he, you could just like those practices are, the practices are more important than the games, just the interaction between the players and the coaching staff with what they want them to do in the individual drills. They'll take players to the side and have them do some extra work. They'll stay after practice. And you can you can tell, like, which players are more popular with, with getting, um, you know, one-on-one treatment with, with, with certain scouts and coaches after practice. So you just learn so much. And the fact that the Bengals are going to have their full force there, it, we're going to know a lot more about who they like and what their process is looking this year than we have in years past. So I'm definitely all for it. I applied for my credentials about a week ago, and I'm still waiting to hear back. But – if I'm going down there, we're we're definitely getting the full coverage for the show. Absolutely. Nice, you uh, you did that last year too, right? You were down there with last, last with, two years. It's a fantastic experience. Yeah, I definitely you were, recommend. Friends you were hanging, you were hanging with big time Joe Goodberry last year, if I remember right. He was he was yeah. Was that the year before? World, world's worst uh, hotel roommate. Let me tell you. Oh boy, uh, horror, <laughs> horror stories galore. I'm sure. Just kidding, Joe. We love you. Um. But, you know, it's a big it's a big thing for the Bengals. And it's, you know, I, I saw one of our, um, uh, was it uh, Joseph Stop again saying Thaddeus Moss, third round. I mean, this, this is the, these are the types of games where you can say, you know, if Burrow is our guy, does it make sense to add a piece that he is very familiar with? If you remember when, Ant, when the Colts drafted Andrew Luck, at the very top of round two, I believe it was, they, the Colts drafted Kobe Fleener his tight end that he loved at Stanford and Fleener had a decent career with the Colts. And it was obviously something that uh, was a strategy by, by Indianapolis to help their, their quarterback out as much as possible. And I think that could be a, a strategy the Bengals use and will potentially look at employing by being coaches of the senior bowl and looking at some of these players that Burrow has played with and seeing if they make, if they make a fit. So, um, Good stuff by uh, for the Bengals ahead, and it's it's an exciting thing. And we'll talk about optimism and whatnot going forward here in just a second. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. We've talked about the Bengals coaching staff. We've talked a little Sam Weish. We've talked about a number of things on this episode. We're going to be here for a little while longer. We will be having a listener questions episode. 
tomorrow afternoon. So join us for that. It'll probably be midday Pacific, so three-ish Eastern. So join us for that. We're already fielding questions. We've got a lot of texts uh, lined up. And then uh, we've got, I think, some emails and, and other stuff. So tweet us, do all that stuff, tee us up. Um, we're, we're still taking questions. There'll also be a post on cincyjungle.com to uh, leave some questions in the comments section there. So um, let us let us know what you're thinking about as we uh, head into the weekend, the first weekend of the offseason for the Bengals. And uh, we'll try and answer as many as we can tomorrow, which is Friday the 3rd. Uh, so try and join us with that uh, for that as well. Again, you can get this show wherever you get your audio podcasts. We're on YouTube and Cincy Jungle, so check us out and try and join us live if you're able. John, I think kind of the last area we're going to we're going to touch on here is just overall optimism. We've kind of built a little bit to this to this point here. Um, we'll try and get to some season awards at the end too. But uh, you know, I, I think kind of where we're where we're going here is how optimistic should we be for a team that that's two and 14 in it? We talked about the senior bowl now on the horizon for them. And then they're, they're being the coach, the coaching staff there, or one of the coaching staffs there. The Bengals just came off a win against a Browns team, really a, a game that you kind of felt they, they needed to win that game for a lot of reasons, not just pride, but to kind of feel good about next year, maybe even security for Zach Taylor, probably not, but maybe a little bit there. That's a, that's a rivalry game. You don't want to lose that at home. Um, you know, maybe a good swan song for Andy Dalton. Uh, now the team is poised to have the number one overall pick, top picks in every round. Uh, guys are getting healthy. You got basically an extra first round pick if you want to look at it that way and Jonah Williams coming back. I mean, Cap space, a lot of different reasons here for optimism. I already saw a comment in our live chats here. You know, it's it's the Mike Brown Bengals. There's no reason for optimism. Okay, um, but I don't know where where are you at optimism wise as as the year now the off season's here, and th- there are a lot of kind of chips stacked in the Bengals corner kind of quietly. That's that's the whole reason for any warranted optimism because the, the pessimism is 100% understandable and it's basically this relationship that Bengals fans have with the organization is very parasitic and it's understandable why you wouldn't have any expectations for them to, to do the right thing. And I think in years past, when they weren't as good, when they were finishing like third in the AFC North, around six to seven wins, they should have been pushed to a place where they could have to be forced to improve, but they didn't take the necessary steps and then, and they ended up progressing to the worst team, in the league. The reason why there's some room for optimism is because like you said, they are in the absolute perfect spot. They are in with the first overall pick with a quarterback who's worth being taken there with a, a coaching staff that again, has now time to build something to overhaul this roster right now. They have about 60 million in cap space but they can get the quarterback off the books for 17 mil. They can get the left tackle, Cordy Glenn, off the books for 9 mil. They can get a cornerback off the books, Drake or Patrick, for about 8 mil. They're setting themselves up for over $8 million, $80 million in cap space, and we know that we don't. they're not going to use all $80 million. They're probably not going to use $60 million of that, but it's still a lot to do a lot more than what they've done in recent past. And to, the fact that they've watched most of their free agency be a colossal failure in, 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 a, in an offseason period where they did make some moves, but it just wasn't very smart moves. 
the fact that they now have that <clears throat> in the back of their minds with a lot more cap space, it, it sets them up to do a lot of great things for once instead of a lot of decent things. And it's a, it's a step for them to take more baby steps into the right direction. But again, it, it's it's the fact that we have to wait to see them actually do it. It's the it's the careful optimism, knowing that they're in such a great position, better better than most teams who are not in the playoffs right now, to, the ability to take this franchise to the next step. They still just have to do it, though. And I understand why anybody would be very skeptical in, in believing that that will actually be happening. But they're also in a position where they don't really have any other choice. Like It's not like they can go in another direction in the draft. It's not like they, they can't use at least 40 million of that cap space to to improve the roster. It's not like they're not going to get rid of Andy Dalton or Cordy Gwen to ex- uh, extend some other players or sign maybe a starter or two in free agency. Like th- these things are almost inevitable with with their situation now, but it's still just the, the big question mark of will they actually do it? And it's you can be optim you can be optimistic because they're just in no position to do anything different. I think that's where this all stems from. Yeah, and uh I've got, I'm sharing a screen here. Uh, you see the top, uh, this is courtesy of Spotrack.com. Um, you know, obviously the financial based uh, site for basically all professional sports. But so this is a little bit of a fluid number, but you're basically seeing the top half of the league in terms of cap space. And Cincinnati currently is at number 13 projected for uh, 2020. With about 50, 58 and a half million in projected cap space. That's without a Drake Kirkpatrick contract potentially coming off of the books. You mentioned Cordy Glenn seeming. I mean, I'd like to see him come in and play well next year, but I mean, they, they kind of benched him a little bit in the last game uh, for Fred Johnson. And, and, you know, so who knows what his future holds. You've got Andy Dalton's 16, $17 million potentially coming off the books. Um, so I guess, you know, if you're adding right there, that's, you know, roughly, gosh, I don't know. Just off. I'd have to go off the top of my head. I think Dre's cap number is about 10 million. Dalton's is about 17 and then Cordy's is I think another eight to 10 million. So, I mean, you're looking at about 35 million or so potentially in additions, right? Um, I, I think with the dead money, it's, it's closer to in the low twenties or sorry, the, the mid twenties. Yeah. But still, okay. It's still, okay. it's still substantial. It's not marginal by any means. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. Cause there's, I, I'm, I've, yeah, I didn't add in the dead cap for, for Kirkpatrick and, and Cordy Glenn, but um, yeah, I mean, you're thinking you're you're looking at mid twenties or so in terms of additional space for that. So I guess where I'm going with this, John, is I, I I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but do you like what, what do you like the best in terms of reasons for it to to be optimistic next year? The late season uptick in performance from the offensive line and the defense, and them getting wins and just playing better throughout most of the second half of the season. The high picks. The senior bowl coaching opportunity or the potential and immense amount of cap space that the team will have at their disposal. So I've seen a lot of dead cap bounces with this team. Now that was all obviously with Marvin, but for them to finish the season on a relative high note, it's not anything particularly new. And I understand that it's more than just winning the last game. It's about showing actual improvement in the, in both sides of the ball specifically with the defense and getting out from the uh, from under the cellar and some of those players actually playing well, 
I think the reason for optimism there is that you're going to have most of this coaching staff back. And it's not like, because last season when they went from Terrell Austin to Marvin Lewis, there was an improvement, but then all of that kind of went away when Marvin Lewis was fired. So the fact that you have Anna Ruma coming back, you would like to see some of that progress from the defense show up this year. But I, I still think that even with that aside, I still think it's just they're in a position to draft a franchise quarterback and they're in a position to actually use some cap space and be almost forced to use some of this cap space because they have to have some type of minimum spending requirement with, with the cap going near 200 million for the 2020 season. So I still think it's just the the situation that they brought in. And I understand that, you know, momentum to a certain extent can be believed to be real, but it's just that I've seen them win, you know, the final two or whatever games for other seasons. And like, like that 27, the 2017 season, they won the last two games. They knocked Baltimore out of the playoffs. It was the, whatever, like the resurgence of Tyler Boyd's career. They still finished six and 10 the next year. It, like it, it, it didn't do a, a ton. I, I think it's still, you still have to harvest or harness that, you know, late season momentum, put it into actual improvements. So it, it, that doesn't really do much for me, but I do like the fact that they're going to turn over this roster to the best of their ability. And for the most part, it's going to be a lot of the, the, those depth players that were left over from the previous regime and potentially get maybe a, a draft pick or two in, in the form of some trades to really help rebuild this roster. I think we're, we're going to see a much different overall roster in terms of just from the bottom up, maybe not in terms of most of the starting lineup, but most of the rotational and depth guys. We're seeing a lot of turnover there. And again, you're going to have the most important piece of, of your team being brought in with the first overall pick. And if, if there's anything that can instill some type of optimism, I think it, it has to be starting there. Yeah. And I, I, predictably, that's where I thought you would go. And that's probably where I'm going to go as well as the draft. And that I, you can lump in the senior bowl with the, with the high picks for in that process. You know, I just, that's what their bread and butter is. And they sucked enough to get those high picks and I guess you could say they deserve those high picks because they did not play well, particularly through the first part of the season. But um, it was a hard season to to bear through. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people would call it a trademark Mike Brown type of Bengals season. But, you know, I, I think the draft with the with the first overall pick um, and then you've got the high picks in the in the other rounds. I think that sets you up real nicely you then you can supplement that with the space. I don't think there's going to be the spending spree that we saw in Cleveland. And if we know anything about no. the Cincinnati Bengals, that's just not going to happen. But I think there there could be some interesting player trades uh, that could either net them more picks or player for player trades, something like that. Uh, so that could take up some of the, the cap space. You could see more free agents coming back, uh, coming to Cincinnati in terms of outside guys, not the absolute A-plus tier guys, but maybe more C and B tier guys, maybe more guys that are going to be solid starters, the John Millers and above, more of those guys as opposed to your BW Webbs and and guys that are way, you know, Kerry Wynn and, and guys like that that sign for near the vet minimum. Um, you get guys that, you know, you can bring back. You also have to consider that, you know, John, you talked about the roster may showing a lot of turnover. That's true. There could be, but I think dark Denard played pretty well this year. That's a guy you may want to think about bringing back, especially if you're thinking about shipping away Drake Kirkpatrick, even though Dre's more of a boundary guy, dark is more of a slot guy. You know, you've got the decision on AJ green to make. You've got a decision to make on Tyler Eifert who said, you know, he, he, 
set a career high in playing games. He played all 16 games and, uh, you know, started to come, al- come alive towards the end of the year, much like the rest of the team. Uh, so, I mean, there, there could be some mainstay. You've got a decision on Joe Mixon. You've got a decision on John Ross. You, you know, you got to figure these things out. So um, if they want to so- re-sign a lot of those guys, that's going to play into that cap space decision. But, uh, you know, I, I think hopefully they'll make some some – a little bit of moves on the, from the outside in terms of, of free agency with that cap space. And then to me, it's, it's about the draft. It's re- it really is about the draft this year and what the Bengals are able to do. Um, so that's, that's if, if nothing else, if nothing else, like, like I said, it's the perfect opportunity for them to do something. And if they don't at least partially take advantage of it, we can just forget about them doing anything else. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like, it's like this is like a litmus test for their overall competency. Like they're in the perfect situation to actually do something to improve in the offseason. And if they don't even do that in the slightest sense, then we can forget about them doing anything in the future. I yep. Guess. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, we've talked about it on a couple of the past episodes as well as uh, seeing some comments tonight. You know, this team set a record uh, in terms of lowest attendance. Uh, this the people were not going to the games. Uh, it was a they were the lowest at Paul Brown Stadium this entire year. I think I think management and ownership sees that. I think they they understand that, and I I don't think that Joe Burrow is he'll move the needle, but he's not going to move it to capacity crowds right away. Uh, if he if right. you know I, I think they need to do more than that. And uh, fan the, these Bengals fans, as we know, they're not dumb. Uh, I mean, we, we interact with them every week. They know their football. They know their team. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if this team isn't showing them more in terms of a desire to win, um, I, I think that they're going to see that. So, but I, like I said, you know, big win, I, I guess, if you want to call it a big win against the Browns, a good way to end the year. So you're feeling pretty good about the last half of the season. You've got your high picks, you've got the opportunity to coach in the, in the senior bowl, and you've got a plethora of cap space. To me, it's just setting up for a potentially exciting offseason. Even, even if you want to put the Bengals asterisk <laughs> next to, next to that statement. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's setting up to be pretty exciting. Do we have time to do awards, John? I'm, I'm good if you are. All right, let's do it. Uh, or do we want to split them up? I yeah, let's do that. Okay. Uh, I love taking half the work. Okay. Uh, how do we – okay. Let's go with – we'll go MVP, offensive MVP, MVP, special teams MVP, and uh, defensive MVP. Let's do all the MVPs. And then maybe coach of the year. How about that? Perfect. And then we can do, like, other smaller ones, like offensive lineman of the year and all that. Break, kind of breakout guy, rookie, whatever. Yeah, yeah. We'll do we'll do those we'll do those on the next episode. See, we're planning on the fly. I love it. I love it. Uh, that's what, what we do best. I know that's what happens when you got two busy guys here. Um, all right. So, defensive MVP, who you got? Oh, it has to be Dunlap. Like <laughs> I think in the beginning portion, I was I was still rating Geno Atkins really high, and this is when Dunlap wasn't wasn't performing at his best either, but. The, the like, like when the defense turned around, it was mainly because of Dunlap and the fact that he got to ten sacks, he got to a top five or ten PFF uh, overall grade as an edge rusher. The fact that he deservedly should be in the Pro Bowl and almost should be almost an All Pro at this point. His late season resurgence has been remarkable, and he's played 
arguably the best he's had all year. And, and it was just such a joy to watch all those pressures accumulate to, to actual tangible uh, quarterback hits and sacks. So that it was amazing to watch him play this year. He by far defensive MVP. Yeah, I mean, Gino got the Pro Bowl nod, but uh, unfortunately, you know, Dunlap hit his stride real later, uh, you know, kind of midway on. And, uh, you know, some of the Pro Bowl voting and all that kind of stuff takes place a little earlier than that. And Dunlap's kind of been a streaky guy in his career. He's been a, he's been a real streaky mm-hmm. guy. And somehow he always sniffs that 8, eight to 12, 8 to 11 sack range. He bats down a ton of passes. Uh, he's pretty dang good against the run. I mean, he can play the run because of his length. And, uh, you know, he, like you said, he's just a good all-around player. I keep waiting for – I when when this – the beginning of this year hit and he just wasn't getting the sacks, he wasn't having the impacts, I'm like, oh, great. There's father time. There's father time. And I keep waiting for it. And and same thing with Gino. I keep waiting for father time to, to catch up with those guys. And they just keep performing. They keep playing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it will hit and it will probably hit in the near future, but I've learned just to not count them out. I I can't count either of those guys out. I give it to Dunlap, even though Gino got the Pro Bowl nod. Um, Dunlap towards the end of the year was just ridiculous, ridiculous in the backfield all the time. And uh, so I got, I got to go with you on, on defensive MVP with Carlos Dunlap. What do you got for, uh, I think I know where you're going to go with this. What do you got for offensive MVP? I want. I feel like Joe is the right answer here, and it, it, it feels like those arguments to be made for others. I think Tyler Boyd deserves an argument. He also had a thousand yards this year. Um, there's an argument to me for Trey Hopkins, the more unheralded guy on offensive line. But I just like I, I have to give credit to Joe Mixon to, for what he improved upon, and he, he's been a good running back for his first two years and behind shoddy offensive line play, but. His real progression this year was in the form of making guys miss and avoiding tackles. And I think he finished officially fifth in terms of avoided tackles from Pro Football Focus. So I think 52. It was a mark that he like. I think he he he's had more broken tackles this year than his first two years combined. And it was it wasn't just the the, the adaptation from the offense line and the, and the scheme to get him going. It was him progressing into a more effective runner and and him progressing into a more valuable runner. And like you said, it wasn't all the offensive line that, that helped him because most of his yards came on his own. And that was because for the, for the first time in his career, he was being a more elusive runner. He was getting more yards after contract. And, you know, he's always been the guy to put his shoulder down and, and to, you know, run over guys. And we saw that in his very last carry against the Browns. But the fact that he was breaking so many tackles and becoming so much more valuable of a runner, it, it made a difference in the run game for the first time in, in, in his whole career. I think this is his most impressive season accounting for all the factors. The, the fact that, the running game was so crappy to begin with. And the fact that he finished with almost as much as, as many rushing yards last season as, as he did this year, I think he finished like 31 short of his mark last year. And he only had 320 in the first eight weeks. So it, it, like I'm, I'm hesitant to give it to running back because their, their inherent value isn't as high, but he was basically the entire offense and his progression should deserve a lot of recognition for that. I, I was tempted to get cute in terms of offensive MVP and team MVP. Um, and I think a case can definitely be made for Tyler Boyd here. Um, but you look at it, you look at, you look at, uh, Joe Mixon here. I mean, 
second highest career total in receptions. Granted, we're only talking about three years, but uh, tied his rookie year total for receiving yards, career high in receiving touchdowns, um, second highest total in rushing touchdowns, second highest total rushing yardage, um, second, second highest yards per attempt. Um, I, I mean, played all 16 games. Didn't you got, you could tell he got a little chippy at, at certain points of the season, but I mean, kept a good attitude throughout and just produced and produced oftentimes, uh, when the offensive line wasn't really helping him out. And I'm looking more back to like the Rams game. I'm looking to the first Baltimore game. And then, you know, towards the end of the season, I think things started to open up the two Cleveland games, the, the new England game. I mean, there was some good blocking there towards the end, but uh, I mean, there are times where there was nothing, there was nothing there and he made it happen. So uh, I'll say offensive MVP, Joe Mixon as well. Uh, Your thoughts on special teams MVP. It's Stanley Morgan, and I like I don't really care about Pro Bowl voting this much, but it's very lazy to put Clayton Fedulum as as the Pro Bowl uh, candidate for the Bengals when in not giving Stanley Morgan the credit. I was more of a fan of Morgan coming out than than of Damian Willis, and I know that Willis got high in, in training camp in the preseason, but I was I was still holding on to Morgan to produce as a receiver and his potential as a receiver. And he ultimately, you know, made the practice squad and got elevated primarily because I think of his work on special teams. I think he established a good relationship with uh, special teams coordinator Darren Simmons, and he definitely earned the trust. And over the over the later course of the season, he was by far their best, their best special team. And this is when Brandon Wilson was leading the NFL in kick return average, like specifically on, on punt coverages. Like he just could not be blocked. And he would make a, about a tackle a game. He would make um, – uh, uh, he would – Stop, stop a keeper punt inside the 10 yard line. He would just be in the right positions at the right time. And every single week when I did the rookie report, there were, there would be some type of play that would make Morgan stand out. I think he ended up with a special teams grade of about 90 from pro football focus, which is top 10 in the, in the league in general. So for an undrafted rookie, start on the practice squad to be your most valuable special teams that that deserves all the credit in the world for sure. Agreed. Uh, Stanley Morgan, and he was exceptional on um, on punt coverage and whatnot. Uh, just, uh, you know, always seemed to be down there making plays. Uh, you know, special teams is a hard one here because I think that there were a number of worthy candidates, your your nominee included. Um, I Even Randy Bullock surprised me at times this year. Um, you know, he, he had one of his best seasons, hit a 57 yarder career high. I, in that Cleveland game, that second one, I think it was 47 yards. It was rainy. It was gross out. I, and the Bengals needed it. And I'm like, watch, they're going to let this thing slip away. He's going to miss this thing. And you know, Cleveland, lo and behold, it's just boom, automatic. He hit it. Um, but I'm not going with him. I'm going with Kevin Huber. Uh, I, I thought Kevin Huber had, one of, if not his best season with the Bengals. He was, uh, I believe, seventh in the league in terms of punts inside the opponent's 20. Um, he was consistently had a high average. I think I think there was a punt return touchdown given up by the Bengals special teams unit, if I remember correctly. But I, I could be wrong about that. I'll have to look that up. But, um, you know, I just he seemed to be very consistent. I can remember really count on one hand and have fingers left over amount of shanked punts this year by him. 
And for a team that was not moving the ball on offense, was struggling on defense early on, he was a guy that was pinning teams deep. And and even at times when they weren't, when the ball wasn't down at the five or two by Morgan, it was inside the 20. It was maybe at like the 16, and it was just a sky-high punt that just limited any kind of return yardage ability. Um, and I think that once the Bengals and the coaching staff started to get their feet under them at the second half of the season in terms of experience and what they're trying to achieve and all of that, I think he became an even more important weapon in terms of using the field position. Um, you know, I just thought it was a very good year from him. And, you know, you don't like to talk about punters that often, but uh, I, I think I think some credit is due there. Uh, I, I thought he played very well for the special teams unit. Yeah, and you can't you can't have the best special teams unit without having a tremendous performance from your punter. And it was it, it's like it, it's similar to offensive line play. If like if you have a bad punter, you you notice him. If you have a bad offensive line or a bad offensive lineman, you typically notice him more than not. With, with Heber, it was just like you know he's going to punt it forty five or fifty five yards. It's going to be going out of bounds inside the ten yard line. It's, it's just it's just consistent. It's just night and day. So that you know he, he probably. He's probably earned this award if we were to give it out every year for the past 10 years, at least, you know, the vast majority of the time. So this year was really no different for him. Yeah. Uh, where do you want to go? Where do you want to end it for tonight in terms of the, the award? Do you want to go coach or do you want to – we're getting some other suggestions in the live chat. But uh, if you've got one, you want to – Yeah, let's go coach, I guess. Okay, go for it. Um, so I want I, – I just want to go Simmons. For, for, I just think for just dealing with being the 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 head guy, they're like the highest standing um, coach remaining from Marvin Lewis to work with brand new coordinators, to work with brand new assistants, and to work with one of the youngest rosters in the team. Most of those young guys, their only opportunity of playing is going to be on special teams. And, you know, to, to go from potentially being the head coach, taking over from Marvin to just being – the same special teams coordinator for the past 20 years now with a new head coach and to have, again, the best unit in the NFL in terms of way DVOA to have really no shortcomings in any type of coverage or return unit to have Brandon Wilson have his best year to have Stanley Morgan be your best special teamers to have Kevin Huber, you know, improve the way he did. And like you said, to have Randy Bullock play better than I guess was expected for him. I, I just think with all those circumstances, he, did by far the best job and if there's anybody on the staff that is worthy of some type of promotion or some type of raise throughout the league it's probably Darren Simmons yeah hard to disagree with you there uh you know I I think some cases could be made for for some other um some other coaches you know I kind of thought maybe maybe the defensive line coach but you know the Bengals were still 26th in terms of sacks and, you know, they were one of the worst at stopping the run and stuff. So I, you know, I, I, I guess I was more romanticizing the past few weeks where the pass rush came alive quite a bit, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard, you know, like I said, Bullock played well this year, kicked pretty well. Uh, Huber kicked, punted well. You talked about Stanley Morgan. Um, the returners, they basically had two guys that could have been Pro Bowl candidates if they were healthy for the entire season in terms of kickoff returners. Um, 
I was not overly enamored with Alex Erickson as a, as a returner this year. He didn't really pop the big plays, but I mean, if that's your biggest issue, a rotational punt return guy that was really forced into more action because of <laughs> injuries to these other guys, then, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of grasping at straws, I think. So I will say yes, Darren Simmons coach of the year for the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, we've got others to get to. We'll, we'll do, We'll do them on subsequent shows. We've got like play of the year. We'll do game of the year. We'll do, um, gosh, what offensive lineman or, or lineman of the year, I guess. We'll, we'll do all kinds of stuff. We'll get, we'll get fun. We'll get crazy with this. But we wanted to start it off and uh, talk about some season awards, at least some of the biggies, get those out of the way, and uh, we'll move on from there. We'll also be doing our 2020 prospect watch coming up on, our, on the next show. We've got uh, – uh, we've got some some people in mind. We took the week off this week, but hopefully you saw them on Cincy Jungle. Joe Burrow, uh, that prospect watch post went up as well as Justin Herbert. I don't think the Tua one went up yet, but that should be coming up. Um, so check those out. We'll be getting you more of those. We've got more coming down the pipe. Uh, the other thing I wanted to just bring up, and I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but uh, we'll be probably doing some pretty special things in terms of guests and stuff in future shows. Uh, as you may have noticed, when we do the prospect watch, we've brought in some others from SB Nation networks and whatnot to help us preview those. We had uh, Mike Holbrook, the a listener in the, in the live Facebook chat. He offered to connect us with former Bengals linebacker, Reggie Williams. Um, and apparently during this show, he said, Reggie Williams said he would love to come on the show. So we're going to coordinate that and bring him on. Uh, interesting time to talk to him, given Sam Weish's pass- passing. He, you know, obviously played under Weish. So um, it, we'll be hopefully coordinating that pretty soon. I've been in talks with uh, getting a particular Bengals player who was on a recent NFL 100 list. Uh to come back on the show. Um, so I wonder who, wonder who that is. Probably their only guy who will be on that list. So uh, we've got uh, some of those people uh, hopefully coming down the pike along with others. This time last year around Super Bowl, we were approached to bring on guys like Tyler Boyd and, and others on the program. So hopefully we'll get those opportunities as well. And like John said, he will most likely be at the senior bowl, getting us some, some coverage there. Nudge, nudge. John. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're excited to bring you some, some interesting stuff and not just from this show. Hopefully you've been enjoying chalk talk from Matt Minnick. Hopefully you've been enjoying, uh, enjoying orange is the new black, the podcast from Zim Hude and ace boogie. We've been bringing a lot of different stuff that is on our audio channel, not necessarily on our YouTube channel, but check out all that stuff. They've been bringing you some great content too. We're excited to bring you some, some new stuff. And uh, just wanted to throw that out there as we close the show, John. It's it's the end of the sh- it's been the end of the year it's the end of the season we we made it it was only two wins but we're here now and like you like the whole theme of this show has been we're we're looking at brighter futures we're looking at greener pastures this is what it's all about yeah nowhere really to go but up um you know it'd be very very hard to believe that this team will be as bad or worse than they ended up being this year um for a variety of factors. And we discussed a lot of those factors, but just general luck and health and, you know, the coaching staff being around (laughs) uh, throughout the month of January. So, uh, you know, you would think that 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 will help them immensely going forward. 
So uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. If you're, if you joined us live, thanks for tuning in after the fact, appreciate your input as always, John, and join us for listener questions on Friday afternoon. Otherwise we'll see you next week for our weekly show. Thanks everybody. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.